Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast, brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Hi, it's Lainey from the Library Love Fest marketing team, and today we're here with another episode of Editors Unedited. We're super excited, and we're joined by Jessica Sindler today, and I'm going to let her take it away. Hi, um, so I'm Jessica Sindler. I am senior editor at Day Street Books. I'm here with Aisha Sasse, author of Beneath the Tamarind Tree, A Story of Courage, Family, and The Lost Schoolgirls of Boko Haram, which Day Street Books is thrilled to be publishing in July 2019, and we're going to talk a bit about Aisha's book. Hi. Hi. So, Aisha, um, I have some questions for you. So the book um, begins in 2016 when you traveled to northern Nigeria to accompany the 21 Chibok girls home to be reunited with their families Mm. after they had spent two years in captivity under Boko Haram. Um, So I'm wondering if you can just take us back to that day when they were originally kidnapped and you know tell us about how you first learned of their story. I was working at CNN at the time based in Atlanta. I was in the newsroom. It was a normal day when the news started to trickle out that there'd been an abduction and you know there'd been an abduction in northern Nigeria. Obviously it's such a remote part of the world that just getting the information out, it, it lagged. You know, we, we found out several hours later that something had gone wrong and girls had been taken before the news came out, that the scale that mm-hmm. we're looking at close to 300 girls who were missing. And I remember just being shocked. It didn't make any sense because first of all, they were taken from school. You know, so how are girls being taken from school? So for me, my first reaction was, what? And where were the teachers? Just lots and lots of questions Mm -hmm. and then it just got very confusing very quickly and I think that's what struck me immediately just how murky it was Mm -hmm. and how nobody seemed able to give us any answers which just Mm -hmm. didn't make sense you send your kids to go to school to learn and a boarding school to be safe and there was no one to answer questions yeah yeah wow it's pretty amazing you know and and um you know initially after the kidnapping I think a lot of us remember the sort of huge outpouring of support, you know, internationally, on social media for the girls, um, people ranging from Angelina Jolie to Michelle Obama. Um, There was the bring back our girls hashtag. But then the story died down and it seemed to kind of fade a bit from the headlines. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, why did why did that happen? Do you think? Um, How does that connect with the story? You know, I have theories on that. I I do think that, um, I think first and foremost is, you know, the big kind of backdrop. I think news moves so quickly these Mm -hmm. days. I think we're working on a kind of warp speed Mm -hmm. and with people being inundated with different sources of news, with social media, like I think people's attention spans have become a lot shorter. Um, But with that story, 
it was just stunning how, again, it happened and it didn't immediately seize public attention. I mean, it happened April 14th. It didn't really start to pick up internationally, probably till when myself and the CNN team got to Nigeria, which was the beginning of May. Mm-hmm. And partly it was because the Nigerian government just didn't give information about right, it. The blackout right. kept yeah. the story under wraps. Mm-hmm. So when the Nigerian government and the president spoke about it close to three weeks later, then I think people suddenly realize there's something very wrong here. Mm -hmm. You know, that no girls have been found. They don't know where they are. They're not saying what has happened, Mm -hmm. what they're doing to bring them back. And that kind of galvanized an international outcry. But almost as quickly as it, it peaked in global attention, as people began to realize that there wasn't a lot of information coming out about the girls and their mm-hmm. families and images to sustain the interest. Right. It right. also started to to, to, to dip and, yeah. and dripple and, and, and trickle off. And so it's one of those stories that peaked again because of the celebrity involvement. Yeah. And then when people's interests faded because they didn't have enough to sustain that interest, it kind of fell away. Right, um, right, so right. for me, it was really painful as someone who'd been on the ground in Nigeria mm-hmm. and interviewed the families and, and, and spent time talking to activists and other journalists. It was painful to see how quickly they were forgotten. Yeah, yeah. No, it's frustrating. And, you know, there's an interesting theme that you touch on in the book, which I'd love for you to talk a bit about, but, um, you know, the, that there's this kind of hierarchy of how the news gets reported. Um, and, you know, you write about how when the kidnapping first broke, you were at CNN, you had some trouble getting, you know, resources and support um, to go in and cover the story. Um, and, you know, it'd be interesting if you could talk a bit about that, because that was something that was while it sort of makes sense, it was very eye opening for me to understand the, that sort of the flow of the news and the yeah. way that that works. You know, I think people have to understand that in a newsroom, you know, editors, producers, anchors, executives, you know, have to make a choice every day. It's like a menu of, of stories from around the world. And at the end of the day, they become some kind of formula that is formulated as to what um, goes to the top and what rises to the bottom. And I think that working within a Western news organization, what has been my experience is that very often Africa, the developing world, they slide to the bottom in that mm-hmm. in that formula, in that pyramid. And, you know, I always say, and I say it quite openly and sadly often, that um, the travails of black and brown girls are easily forgotten and ignored, ignored then forgotten. And um, certainly in the news business, I think that there is an element also of unconscious bias that is at play, that people resort to telling stories about their own, their own communities, their own people. And I think when Africa comes to the forefront, it's something that is so awful it's mm-hmm. so extraordinarily shocking right. that it supplants something else, right? right. That right. might be more kind of rooted in what's happening here in the United States. Um, I think newsrooms here in the United States are very, very U.S. focused. Um, mm-hmm. And it has intensified with Trump coming to power yeah. that a lot of other stories that are important just don't get the coverage. Mm-hmm. And so for CNN, you know, to be fair, at the beginning of the story, um, I, I think they couldn't help but be all in. Mm-hmm. But I think their interest waned along with the rest of the the world as they didn't have the the images and the Mm -hmm. additional information to keep it going. My issue comes with when the girls were released, 
when we found ourselves now in the thick of a U.S. election campaign, right. the fact that there wasn't the interest right, right. In, in kind of covering, you know, mm-hmm. their the freedom. Right. You when know, there had been this huge new. Break yeah, in the story. exactly. Yeah. Then then a choice was made. That's mm-hmm. when the choice became quite stark yeah. between the U.S. election mm-hmm. versus the yeah. story with right. about girls right. in Africa. Yeah. And the choice was made. And yeah. that was to concentrate on Trump and Clinton and everything that was going right. down in right. 2016. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, to get back to, you know, to get back to the girls story. Um, so originally. 276 girls were abducted, which sounds like a huge number, you know, mm-hmm. now as I'm saying it out loud. Um, who were these girls and why were they targeted? So it's mm-hmm. a couple of questions. And then how many have now been released? And, you know, what are the freed girls doing now versus mm-hmm. those who are still in captivity? So I think those are some of the questions that people on the outside sure. are wondering about. Sure. So, yeah, 276 girls. With a lot of children, yeah. it's close to 300 girls yeah. that were swept up that night. They were in their boarding school, getting mm-hmm. ready to take exams, benchmark end of high school exams, which were really going to determine whether they went off to college or went off into the workforce or what came next. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, they range from 15 th- through higher because in Africa, kids stop, start, mm-hmm. you know, they're in school, they're out of school. And sometimes they trend a little high, a little older. So they range from about, I would say, 15 to perhaps 18, 18, 19. Um, and um, they, were, they were swept up by terrorists who were basically on the rampage in Chibok, um, which is a village in Borno State, which is actually the birthplace of Boko Haram. Mm. So they... The, 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 the town of village, although some people argue it's a town, was a village, it's so small when you go there, it's so mm-hmm. small and it's so run down and they're just like a couple of shops and, 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 and houses. And basically they decided to target Chibok, f- not for any particular reason other than, you know, Boko Haram was on a rampage throughout the region. And I always say that the, the abduction of the girls was a crime of opportunity, mm-hmm. having spoken to a number of girls about what they heard that night from the men who actually came. They came looking for boys because it's a school Mm. that also had male students during the day. And Boko Haram had been going around attacking schools and actually attacking male students, very often telling the girls could leave but Mm -hmm. must drop out of school altogether. So they swept up 276 girls who they found unattended with no teachers Mm -hmm. to protect them. 57 escaped immediately. So 57 escaped immediately that night and the terrorists made off with 219 girls. So they disappeared into the forest with 219 girls. And of that 219, 107 are free now. Okay. 107 are free, the majority of which are in a school in northern Nigeria now, carrying on with their education. And they're doing really well. That's wonderful. They're doing really, really well. They are so incredibly hopeful and forward-looking and faith plays a really big part in this in their story mm-hmm. which has allowed a lot of them and I, I, I know this because I know how important faith is in their community mm-hmm. but I've asked a couple of the girls directly whether they've forgiven the people who took mm-hmm. took them captive and they have they've forgiven them mm-hmm. and they're moving on and they're focusing on becoming doctors or lawyers mm-hmm. or accountants and really trying to get their lives back on track. Mm-hmm. Now there are 112 girls who are unaccounted for. Right. Right. And 
there has been some reporting and statements made from Boko Haram that some of those girls have actually died in captivity, hmm. but nothing has been verified. We right. don't know names. We don't know numbers specifically. So hmm. what we say, sadly, is there are 112 girls who are unaccounted for. Wow. I mean, that's, it's devastating. And it, it it's, you know, it makes you really outraged that yeah. For that many girls, you know. And some you know, of them have and... been radicalized and don't mm-hmm. want to come back. Right. There's right. that element to the story now mm-hmm. that having been in captivity for so long, I mean, yeah. April 14th, right. 2019, will make it five years. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So some of them have been radicalized. Mm-hmm. We know a lot of them have been married off. We know a lot of them will, you know, at the stage will have had children and we don't know how many are still alive. And it's mm-hmm. outrageous yeah. to think that there were so many girls who have been unaccounted for and we don't know what the government's doing to try and get them back there's been a break in the actual structure of the terrorist groups and now the government says they don't know who to negotiate with right right yeah and that's that's all we know yeah and i think there's sort of the impression that um you know in in part in response to this story you know boko haram was was pushed back and there was aid and you know there were there were troops from various countries that came in to fight them. I mean, what is um, as far as we know the the current status of Boko Haram in Nigeria? Are they still a significant? Yeah, problem? I mean, to be honest, they come roaring back. Mm-hmm. In, in Nigeria just had the presidential elections um, mm-hmm. um, February with the schedules for February fifteenth, but they were postponed three hours before the polls opened and um, have just been concluded. And um, it's, it's you know, President Buhari, who has been re-elected, had made it a, a big statement um, and a big declaration that mm-hmm. Boko Haram had been defeated and they were on the back foot. But we saw in the run-up to the election that Boko Haram launched a series of attacks once more mm-hmm. in northeastern Nigeria. They even attempted to kidnap the governor of Borno State less yeah. than a month ago yeah. um, in, in January 2019. So Boko Haram is still very much a threat, especially now that they've splintered into, mm-hmm. um, into two factions, one of which is aligned with ISIS. Mm-hmm. Um, or IS, the Islamic State. And so their threat is still one that is potent, that is still bringing terror to people in that part of the world mm-hmm. and leaves kids unable to go to school and afraid, really, because, you know, once again, they're launching attacks on villages, they're killing people, they're destroying property, mm-hmm. and they're disrupting day-to-day life. So Boko Haram is still very, very much a threat. And the point that I, I, I try to make in this book is that you may be you know, sitting in your home in, I don't know, in the Midwest and, and thinking to yourself, well, that's that's a shame, but it's not our problem. It's a problem mm-hmm. that affects the people of northern Nigeria. The point that I'm trying to get across to people is that, um, first of all, we live in a highly globalized world and the world has become much smaller. Mm-hmm. And when you have a group that's made an alliance with a group like ISIS, uh, the Islamic State, a group which has primarily made the U.S. its number one target, Mm -hmm. we should all be concerned because what groups like that are always looking for are places to take root. Mm -hmm. And we saw that with al-Qaeda and what happened with 9-11, that effectively um, Osama bin Laden found a space in in Afghanistan Mm -hmm. and he took root there because it was an ungoverned space. There was no 
authority to govern the space and keep them out, that's where they plotted 9-11. Mm-hmm. So what was happening in Afghanistan seemed so far away and had nothing to do with the US. But ultimately, what we saw is there was an attack plotted on Afghan soil that came back and claimed the lives of almost 3,000 people here mm-hmm. on the US mainland. When you have groups that are aligned with others that are the enemy of the United States, wherever they take root and are causing injustice and bringing instability, we should pay attention. Yeah. We should pay attention because yeah. that could be a breeding ground that could potentially cause problems for us here in the United States. Right. So this right. isn't a story about a faraway place, about things happening to people that mean nothing. Mm-hmm. We should care on a humanitarian level, right. but right. also on a geopolitical, strategic level, we should care. Yeah, it's very powerful. And it's, you know, another reason why all of us should continue to pay attention to this story and, you know, why it really matters. Um, And I guess, you know, on another level, um, you know, this book has a a really deep and moving personal thread, um, which is the story of your mother, Mm. um, you know, which I I love about the book, um, who is, yeah, it's it's wonderful, um, you know, being from Sierra Leone, so a neighboring country to Nigeria, and a great source of inspiration Mm. for you in your life. How does your mother's story in your mind intersect with the story of the Chibok girls? And how does, you know, how does her story sort of fit in to you? You know, I, I mentioned at the beginning that, that Chibok is this this poor community with, you know, homes without running water and electricity is in short supply and just everything we take for granted is not part of day-to-day life. My mother is from a small town um, in, in Sierra Leone that isn't very different from Chibok. Mm. So she grew up in a home with those limited resources, with parents who weren't educated, but who encouraged her schooling. And for me, there's so many parallels between her and the Chibok girls. Mm -hmm. You know, education transformed my mother's life. Mm -hmm. And these girls were in school with the same mission to transform their lives by being in school. So to me, they were on the same journey and they were aiming for the same destination that my mother arrived at. So to me, I always say it's like two sides of the, of the coin. And um, But for the fact my mom was educate, educated in the lottery of life, I would have been born in a place like Chibok. You know, mm-hmm. I would have faced yeah. Yeah. hurdles and restrictions to being educated. Um, but I, I that wasn't my that wasn't my lot you know I was born to progressive parents highly educated parents who pushed me to be educated and paved the way for me to be a journalist at CNN for 13 years Mm -hmm. Um, what I want people to understand by telling my mother's story is I want them to see how big the gains can be when you educate Mm -hmm. girls I want them to understand what is lost when you don't educate girls Mm -hmm. that the gain isn't just to that individual it's to the family the community potentially the world you know because Mm -hmm. they can go they themselves have careers and their children can go off and have careers that can be transformative and beneficial to to many so I, I weave it through the book because I want people to understand not in an abstract sense the power of education but to say look at me and the reason you read these words because I was educated, because you can have that starting point in life, which my mother had, which is the same as a girl's in Chibok, and look how far you can go. So -hmm. hopefully it will give a thrust to all those education activists in the world. It will give a thrust to all these people who are advocates for girls being in school Mm -hmm. and for lowering the the barriers to girls really fulfilling their potential. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I think your mother really is an example of how much, you know, 
a woman can achieve mm-hmm. when given the yeah. tools and the resources. Um, yeah. So it's a really amazing story. Yeah, um, she's amazing. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Aisha. This has been great. Thank you. Um, thank you to Day Street. Thank you to the entire team at HarperCollins who have believed in this book from the very first day that I wrote the treatment. And I'm excited for it to be shared with the world. So thank yeah. you.